And welcome to the Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor, a part of the Unhinged Sports Network. As always, you can reach us on our social media, on Twitter, at TheBleacherCon1 and at TheBleacherCon2. We have our Facebook page, the Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor. As always, love to hear what you have to say, what you think, any topics you want to hear us talk about, let us know. On this week's episode, we're going to be looking at a few different topics. Uh, with the hiring of Kim Ang by the Miami Marlins, we're going to look at the impact of females in men's professional sports. Uh, we're also going to give our take on some of the new NHL reverse retro jerseys that have begun to been leaked. And is there any other possible revenue ideas for the NHL? And with the NBA looking at a December 22nd return date, how does that impact other pro sports like the NHL and, and their race to get back in action? Uh, as always, we're going to begin our show with That's Offside. And this week, we're going to uh, do a little bit of a different take on it. We're going to do more of a Q&A format where Ken and I have come up with a couple of different topics that we're going to ask each other about. And uh, we don't know what the questions are beforehand, so it's going to be a little off the cuff. Should make for some uh, interesting, interesting answers. Got to so, keep each other on our toes somehow. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ken, why don't you lead us off in that soft side? All right. So, Trevor, the first one I'm going to ask you about is La Russa being hired by the Chicago White Sox. What's your take on that? I have a few different issues with Tony La Russa being hired by the White Sox. The main issue to me is this is a guy who twice now has been caught with a DUI, so essentially drunk driving. I got huge problems with that. How can, how can you have such a public figure who's supposed to be a role model to lots of people around the game, kids included, and A, I have a problem with the White Sox hiring him and essentially turning a blind eye. They knew about it. And they still chose to hire him. They knew it happened twice and they chose to hire him. That's, that's a black eye for the organization. How can you honestly roll this guy out to the kid fans and the young teenager fans of your team and not, and feel right in doing so? The second issue that I really have with it is Tony LaRussa tried to use his celebrity acumen to get off of the charges. When he got pulled over, he started flashing his World Series rings and identification, pretty much saying, don't you know who I am? And trying to get off of it by using his celebrity status. It's not right. You, you broke the law doing something that could have easily killed somebody. And you're trying to get off, of, get off on the charges because you're a celebrity. Like, that's absolutely ridiculous, Larusa. Yeah, and I think, I mean, absolutely right. It's, you know, when it comes to celebrities and getting in trouble with the law, you hear about this kind of stuff and everyone, you know, should be held to the same standards of what the law says. But when you try and use your celebrity, you get why people get frustrated and upset with that. I kind of was thinking it's offside for a different reason. And that is we are recycling the same old boys club through the managerial system in Major League Baseball. La Russa's back. He's also not, he's one who's not a fan of the whole, you know, celebrate, show any emotion, excitement, just play a dull game. Uh, Dusty Baker is another one like that who doesn't want to see excitement in baseball. He wants it kept, you know, to the unwritten rules where you, it's very bland. Why don't we get some fresh blood into the game coaching these 
players. You tell me there's no better option in all of baseball that you had to go back to Tony La Russa? To me, that's where I think it, it, it's offside as a, on top of what you brought up. I just think that we got to get some fresh blood in here. That does not mean more analytics. Please let me preach to that. No more analytics. Let's get some fresh ideas in the game. Let's bring some excitement into it. That's what we need. Who knows when we're ever going to see fans in, in the seats again. Let's make the entertainment value for television higher than what it is right now in baseball. But Ken, you hate analytics. So Larusa should be your guy, shouldn't he? <laughs> no, 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 he's not. You know, not my guy. I, I just want to see some exciting baseball, some fresh ideas. I want to see people that are going to come in and actually teach players how to put a proper bunt down the third baseline to walk to first when the shift when the shift is on and you've got every player on the right side of the field you know guys are still still can't put a ball to the left side of the infield to get on base i just want to see some good exciting baseball let the fernando tatises of the world just showcase what they can do and bring some excitement that's what i want to see yeah let the players have a little bit of personality not lock them down yeah no I, that's very fair answer ken uh my question to you with the masters traditionally being held in april for obvious reasons, we weren't able to hold hold that event this April. How do you feel about the Masters being in November in front of no crowds? Well, I, I think the no crowds is definitely, it, it changes it, obviously. But I think it's what's needed. We've seen too many times when you get fans at events, it just doesn't go well. Major League Baseball brought fans in and, and then we started we got COVID cases. So I think the no fans is fine. I don't have an issue with that. The timing of it though, I'll, I'll say that's a bit odd. Why not hold it when it normally would have been? I think it's offside because you're trying to hold out to make the money on it. Obviously different time of year than when it's normally played. So are you changing the conditions and changing the quality of play for the players? Are we seeing the type of golf that we would have seen back in April? So I think the no fans I have no issue with, the no audience, it's the timing. Play it when it should have been played. If Because golf is a sport, you don't need to have the fans. You can socially distance, distance all the players. So I think it was purely for the money, and I think that was the wrong reason. Yeah, I'm in a little bit of disagreement on the fans aspect of this, and this is going to go against a lot of my beliefs on the COVID. I actually think you probably could have had some fans at the Masters. I know COVID is blowing up in the United States, but you're talking about an outdoor event that you could have adhered to some kind of social distancing policies. I'm not talking about having the, the tens of thousands of fans they normally do, but I don't see how you couldn't have had upwards of a hundred fans on each hole and maybe just had some restrictions around where they were allowed to travel on the golf course. Uh, being outside, I just don't see how you couldn't have had some sort of, of fanfare. And I think the Masters of all the majors is, to me, it's the most impressive major. And not having fans there really does draw back. You don't get the roar of the crowd when when you get into amen corner and someone knocks it tight on, on number 12 in the final round. And you don't get that roar of the crowd. That that's To me, that is the Masters. And I think they could have found a way to get some fans there. Uh, the course does play a little bit differently, but I don't have a huge deal with that. I think any of the people who've played tons of rounds there, I think it's something fresh and exciting for those guys. So 
that end of it isn't a huge deal to me, but not having the crowds there is a big deal to me. And I think they could have found a way. So for that reason, I find it a little bit offside. Fair enough. I mean, I say, how would you control that though? I think that's the I, big I don't piece. Know, you have to but... have someone out there to police that because yeah. we all know people have their opinions on it, whichever way they lean, that makes it difficult to enforce the distancing. Yep. And I think that's, they could have gone with cardboard cutouts. I mean, I'm sure yep. people who would have hit into the <laughs> crowd would have preferred a cardboard cutout to ricochet it back onto the fairway and 20 yards down. Yeah. As opposed to knocking out a fan and maybe costing them a little bit in the pocketbook. But yeah, See, I think they, they could have put around the golf course, they could have put like two person cohort bubbles and circles around the golf course where you, you literally just draw circles that a maximum of two people could stand in and you space them apart appropriately. And I think you limit the ability of those people to move around the golf course or you only sell enough tickets for to have um, grandstand seating around the major holes and socially distance. And you only sell enough tickets for a certain amount of cohorts and those people just follow them around the golf course in those yeah. bubbles. But I think you could have had some fans there. Final round, 18th hole when you come to the finish. I think that's where you would have had a hard time keeping people away. Yep, I um, agree with that from everything to keep it safe kind of keeping with the masters theme Deshambo made some pretty hefty claims going into it that he was going to tear the course up with no fans there for a long ball hitter like himself it was going to be easy peasy how'd that work out for him Trev well Bryson Deshambo made some claims heading into the round that he felt that Augusta was going to play to a par 67 to him which in my opinion is ridiculous I don't care how far you can hit the ball. If you can't hit the ball straight, you're not going to score well. The Masters has never been a tournament that the long ball hitter has had any advantage. The guy that wins this tournament is the straight ball hitter. And the guy who can play from the tee to the fairway and the fairway to the green and hole a few putts. Bryson DeChambeau is not a good putter. Bryson DeChambeau, his approach game is not that great. So two of the three major elements of the Masters where you succeed are not his strengths. So how he can come in and boast and say, I'm going to, it plays to a 67 and I'm going to shoot 63s and 64s is ridiculous. So what you're saying is he went in with a happy Gilmore style game and it did not work out for him. He did not get the uh, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of his playing partners were like, he was hitting it in the trees and all over the place in the first two rounds and he shockingly made the cut with a little bit of luck and he turned it around a little bit on the weekend, but he was playing with John Rom, and one of the announcers asked, or one of the, the media asked, you know, were you involved in the search for his ball on a, I can't remember exactly which hole it was where he ended up shooting a triple bogey. And the media personality asked, well, were you involved with uh, DeChambeau's search for the ball? And Rom pretty much said, which one? <laughs> Like you could tell all the other golfers were put off too by it. And I think they actually secretly kind of enjoyed watching him hit it all over the course. Yeah. I think, and I think that's where a comment like that comes in as being offside, because if you're not, as you say, if you don't have the full bag of skills to take on a course like Augusta and you're making these bold claims just because you can hit the, the long drive, you're going to rub some people the wrong way. Cause golf definitely seems like a sport where, 
tradition and customs are high up there and personalities don't really shine yeah much in the golf course DeShambo is trying to put an analytic spin on it which i'm sure you love uh, talking about uh ball ball flight speed and and club head speed and all these different types of analytics last time i checked golf was about hitting the ball straight yeah you can't really mock that up on a computer no so our last topic ken that i want to ask you about is russell westbrook he's recently come out and pretty much said he wants out of houston how do you feel about professional athletes who are under contract and being paid by their organization to demand trades and wanting out well Honestly, I think the majority of time I would call heavy offside on this where and I'm going to throw JJ Watt into this as well, because his name came up around the NFL trade deadline about being dealt out of the Texans and kind of because he doesn't want to go through a rebuild. I'm going to give both these guys a pass on this one. And I don't think it is offside that these two are potentially asking for, for an out. And I'll start with Westbrook. He did not sign his deal with the Rockets. That was a deal he signed with Oklahoma. They traded him and Houston gave up a lot. They gave up a lot of their future to get Westbrook in Houston. And that's where maybe a little bit it might be offside if the team wasn't going in a direction of we can't compete with the LAs so we're not going to try is what it kind of seems. They fired their GM who was quickly snagged up by Philly. There's also rumors of Harden being dealt to Philly because of apparently of the relationship he has with the GM, which would only leave Westbrook. Now, he didn't sign that contract with them. He may have been all right to go there when he was dealt because Houston did look like a team that could compete. But if they're not willing to, let's face it, Westbrook's not a young young player anymore. He's only got a handful of years left. For him to want to maybe go to a contender and have a chance to win, I have less of a problem with that. With J.J. Watt, he has been the face of the Texans for so long. And in a sport like the NFL, you don't have a guarantee of a long career. He's had a good career, but he's also been injured. He himself said he only has a handful of good years remaining, and he wants to win. And I don't have a problem with him saying that. He doesn't want to go through a rebuild. And the Houston Texans traded Hawkins and left Watson and Watt there to hold down the fort. Well, it's not going well. And so I don't, no, mind, not. I don't mind those two guys saying, I want to win. I don't have much time left. Normally, if a player has signed a contract with the team for a lot of years, a lot of money, or even not a lot of money, I don't necessarily like it when a player says that. Now, there's lots of reasons I could go into why a player would, and that's why I don't like it. But in a case like this, I'm going to give these guys a bit of a pass. I don't think that this is offside. I have to disagree with you. I think it's wholeheartedly offside. I think you're setting a very bad precedent and the NBA is probably the worst for this already where everybody wants to play on the best teams and, you know, get me out of here and trade me to here so I can win. Last time I checked, you signed a contract and you sign a contract for a length of time for a certain amount of money. Your fulfillment is to your team play, paying that contract and whether he signed it with Oklahoma or Houston doesn't matter. He signed a contract for a certain length and a certain time or a certain money. So whether he likes it or not, he should be giving his full effort to the team that is paying him. And if he doesn't like it, then maybe he shouldn't sign such a long contract. 
because your way to get to choose where you want to play is in free agency, not by demanding a trade. Now, if the organization decides to trade you, that's a different thing, but demanding it and saying, I want out is completely offside. Don't sign long-term deals. If you don't want to get stuck in a situation, potentially that may be less than desirable sign short-term deals. And I, I know that goes against the money-making aspect of it, but you can't have your cake and eat it too. You either get to freely switch teams a lot of times in free agency, or you play for the contract that you signed for. And demanding a trade to me is ridiculous. I get he wants to be on a winner. Well, maybe he should have thought of that before, you know, when he got dealt from Oklahoma, he thought he was going to a winner. Now he doesn't like it. And and I was like, oh, send me somewhere else. Well, and, so and don't complain be, but, about it. Maybe you're the problem, Russell Westbrook. But doesn't the team, and, and again, like I don't disagree with you most of the time in this part, doesn't the team, any team in this kind of situation also have a responsibility to put forward the, a winning product? Because we've seen it in a lot of other sports where you get a superstar on a team and then the team decides to go in a different direction that is clearly not going to win. So does the team not owe the players, not just the superstars, the best product and the best pieces around them to help win as opposed to, well, you know what? There's a guy coming up in the draft in, in two years that we really think is going to be a game changer. Yeah. So we're not really going to put forth a good effort to try and get that top draft pick. At the end of the day, only one team a year can win. So how you can say trade me to a winner or get me out of this situation is ridiculously difficult because only one team a year wins. And I think you look at someone like Russell Westbrook in Houston, his team's been to the playoffs every year. His team has gone on some playoff pushes. How can you say I'm not winning there? You're getting an opportunity every year to win. And sure, you may not beat the Lakers of the world, but 29 other teams this year couldn't either. So only one team can win. So how can you say, trade me to a winner? You're already on a winner. So shut your mouth and play basketball. Hey, it's definitely going to be until he either suits back up for Houston or is suiting up for someone else. We'll have to wait and see what, uh, what happens. Yeah. I think we'll have to agree to disagree on this one, Ken. I think so. <laughs> Although it doesn't happen very often, but I think, yeah, the odd time it, it, it does. All right. So let us know what you think. What's your take on all on those topics? Where do you think we were right or where do you think we were wrong? Hit us up on our social media, Twitter, at the BleacherCon1, at the BleacherCon2, or drop us a note on the Facebook page, the Bleacher Connection with Ken and Trevor. Uh, before we get on to our, our topics, uh, MLB handed out some hardware this week. And I uh, just kind of want to give a quick shout out to Freddie Freeman, good Canadian kid, picked up the NL MVP. So that was... Uh, that was definitely a, a nice note uh, coming into the weekend here. Always nice to see a little bit of Canadian content dominating the sports airwaves. And good on you, Freddie Freeman. You're one of the best since Larry Walker to to play in Major League Baseball and, and be a Canadian. So good job, Freddie. Yeah, congratulations. Kind of sticking with baseball, we're going to move into talking about uh, you know females in the sporting world. And I think this week was a, a, a big week for that. Um Trevor, you want to lead us in? Yeah, this week the uh, the Miami Marlins made an historic, I, don't, I guess I don't want to call it a signing, a hire by hiring Kim Ang to be their general manager. She, she's been in baseball for a while, I believe, in the Dodgers organization, and, and she's now getting her chance to, to show what she can do on the biggest of stages. She's the decision maker. And we'll see where she goes. I, I wish her 
all the best in this. I think uh, it's refreshing. It's awesome. And it's something that's been badly needed in the major sports. Uh, a little caveat to this. Kim Ang is the first general manager in, of the first four major sports in North America. But I got to give a shout out to Joanne Pollock, who was actually the first general manager in a major sport in North America. When in 1989, she was named the uh, general manager of the Ottawa Rough Riders in the Canadian Football League. So, you know, that, that's a little, little known fact for a lot of people, but, you know, I, I think she deserves a shout out. And I think, you know, the hiring of Kim Ang just is going to progress on that. And I think it's awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, big news. She's been in baseball for 30 years, you know, from 1990 to 96, she was with the White Sox as a assistant director of baseball operations in 97, she went to the office of the American League as director of waivers and records. So she pretty much approved all transactions. Uh, from 1998 to 2001, she was assistant general manager of the New York Yankees. So from 2002 to 2011, she was assistant GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers. She is one of four women to hold assistant G the assistant GM title in baseball. Um, Elaine Weddington Stewart, and Ra Raquel Ferreira were both the assistant GM at times with uh, the Red Sox. And Gene Afterman was assistant general manager of the Yankees as well. She's also a three-time World Series winner, uh, 1998, 1999, and 2000 with the Yankees. She'd been interviewed five other times for the GM role by the Dodgers, the Mariners, Padres, Angels, and Giants. And from 2011 on, after she left the Dodgers, she was senior VP of baseball operations. So she has quite the baseball resume and clearly qualified for the job. This is not a, a, a new position that she's going into. She has a lot of history in baseball. And I think this is a, a, a really good hire. I think it's significant in, in many ways. And to me, the most important is you just read her credentials. She's qualified for it. And I think it's about bloody time that someone with her qualifications is getting the, this opportunity. I think it's fantastic. It gives, you know, a lot of, especially young female sports viewers, something that they can strive for. And it's just, it's a bright shining light for them to go. I can do it too. And she has the, the acumen to to do this now i'm really interested to see how she does because i do think she is going to still run into some some difficulties within other general managers around the league where do they take her seriously and, and i sure hope they do but yeah. is she going to run into those types of problems are our other general managers going to be willing to talk trade with her is there going to be this feeling of uh, she doesn't know the game. She doesn't belong. Is there still going to be a bit of that kind of old school boys club? And, and, and is there going to be some sexism towards her? I hope not, but it's very possible. So yeah, be, I'm very interested to see how this plays out. Yeah. And you touched on that. I think it would be for the day and age we we're in. And I think touched on this with the old boys club with the hiring of Larusa. Is that going to be a problem? I really hope not because it shouldn't come down to whether you're a man or a woman 
and that's how you're judged for being qualified for a job. It should come down Absolutely. to the qualifications. And nothing says that, you know, a man can run a team better than a woman can. She has three World Series rings, which is probably a lot more than some of the current general managers in the league right now. So, and she helped build, she was part of the Yankees during their powerhouse years in the late 90s. So, you know, I really hope that doesn't happen. But kind of also got us talking and looking at some of the other sports. And what are some of the other sports going to take that step as well? And I think the NBA has done better than any of the other three major sports after baseball. Even baseball doesn't have a lot of female representation in the coaching ranks, but the NBA's had 14 female assistant coaches throughout the past 20 years, and 10 of them are still active with teams. Becky Hammond with the Spurs, I'd almost say that she's being tapped as potentially Popovich's successor, right? She's been with that team for quite some time. I apologize if I say her name wrong. Jenny Busick with the Mavs, she's an assistant coach. She's one of, you know, eight others that are currently serving in the NBA. I think it's it's tremendous that there's currently 10 female assistant coaches in the NBA. And there's also an assistant GM in the NBA. There's Kelly Crosskopf in Indiana, who is in almost an executive role in the NBA. Like it, it clearly the NBA is the, the front runner in, I guess you can call it the women's movement in getting more of them into men's professional sports. And this is awesome. Like, yeah. It's good to see because the you have the NBA and you have the WNBA, but you aren't just seeing the women players and coaches and, and, and such staying in the WNBA. They're making the jump to the NBA because they should be, because they're yep. that good. There's nothing that says that they can't teach the player something that they don't know. So I, I really like to see that when you have the comparison of pro leagues for the men and the women, that the same opportunities are being afforded to the women to come over and coach. Well, even further in the NBA, you have four female referees who are on staff right now. Uh, the first ones were, uh, the first one was in 2014, 2015, I believe, uh, Lauren Holtkamp Sterling. But now since then, she's been joined by three others. So you have four female officials right now in the NBA. I look in some of the other leagues, the NFL currently only has one referee in sarah thomas major league baseball and the nhl have none there's yeah. no umpires and no referees in uh, in either of those leagues that are female which i think is very disappointing especially when you look at women's hockey women's hockey is is big like there's especially in canada yeah there it has a huge league and lots of females who play hockey and the fact that none of them yet have graduated to the NHL to be a referee is is disappointing in my opinion. Yeah, and even be like before because the NHL was the next part I wanted to talk about with this, but before we got there, even like the NFL has four women that have held coaching positions as well um, that we could kind of see. There might be more. We apologize, but in 2015, Jen Welter held a six-week training camp coaching position with the Arizona Cardinals. Catherine Smith with the Bills was the first to hold a full-time sideline coaching job. Katie Sowers is assistant coach with the 49ers. Kelsey Martinez, strength and conditioning coach. 
right? So you're seeing that in the NFL more too now where you have the representation of women in sports, but then you get to the NHL. And this is the part kind of really wanted to talk about. There's one, Dawn Braid is the Arizona skating and skating coach. She's the first and I think only full-time coach in the NHL. We don't even have a female referee. We don't have any of that. And that, I think that you, you brought it up. We have a lot of very talented women hockey players throughout the world that I think could be in the NHL. I know Haley Wickenheiser has been hired by the Leafs in a front office type role, but you're talking about that's She's one of the most decorated Canadian women hockey players, Cassie Campbell. The list goes on. Jen Botterill. There's a lot of... Cammy Granato. Cam, well, Cammy Granato does have a job within the Seattle Kraken's organization. She has yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So Good on them. That's good to see. But it's just really disappointing that no one has given one of these very talented, very you know smart, capable women the opportunity to step forward and be a coach, be an assistant general manager, be a, a GM, any of that. I don't understand it. Uh, it it's well, mind-boggling as to why it doesn't happen when we have a system that would work to bring them in. I think we, we are, we've always been in agreement that the NHL is probably one of the worst leagues for the old boys club. And, Absolutely. And a lot of things have come to light recently, very disturbing things, whether it be racism or hazing that has happened in hockey and it's almost very a white privilege league which is disappointing to say and i think this is just kind of a further extension to that and it's it's very disappointing especially since there's the infrastructure in place in with women's leagues in both canada and the united states to graduate some of these women to prominent positions in the nhl whether it be a coach, assistant coach, GM, assistant GM, referees. There are knowledgeable and well-respected women in the women's game that are not being given this opportunity. And to me, it's not right. And it's time for the NHL to look in the mirror and maybe look at what the NBA is doing and saying, hey, us too, we need to do this. Yeah. Because it's not right and it's not good. And as a fan of the league, I would love to see it. I'd love it. I think it would be, it would open so many eyes in and just make it a, not even, not even so much a global league, but uh, a league for everybody. Cause right now it's not. And, and that's disappointing to say. No. Yeah. Cause you, you talked about the privilege part of it. Hockey is not a cheap sport to be in. So it is problematic in that sense is that it is not for everyone. And it, this is definitely just another part of it being of that being on showcase because that is not well, the nhl anymore. has a slogan hockey is for everyone and that the that is so far from the truth that i can't even believe they use that slogan yeah it's uh i'd like to see me one day but it, it it's difficult to see it happening just with the way things are going on and i don't agree with it there's definitely you know a lot of recycled problems in hockey and i mean let's be honest mike babcock's still being discussed for coaching jobs right in the nhl and there we go That's bill peters got right hired in sure it was in the khl but bill peters got his job back after blatantly being brought out as a racist yeah. and he still found work in hockey it it this league is not for hockey is not for everyone and it, it's tremendously disappointing and i think getting more females in the league would be a great step in 
towards fixing that problem. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It definitely, it, it needs to happen sooner than later. It, it, it needs to, it needs to happen. So, all right. You guys want to let us know what you think on that, what your take is again, uh, let us know through our social media on Twitter at the BleacherCon one at the BleacherCon two Facebook page, Bleacher connection with Ken and Trevor. Let us know what your thoughts are on, uh, women in, ho- in, in sports in general, not just hockey, but when do you think we'll start seeing more changes like we have in uh, Major League Baseball? And the NBA. Okay, well, we've had some uh, hard-hitting topics here to start. So, Ken, I think it's time that we have a little bit of fun with, uh, with this episode now. And, and I think that uh, we're going to discuss some of the soon-to-be-revealed, if not already leaked on, on social media, reverse retro jerseys. And to go along with that, because obviously this is a revenue driving, uh, I guess you could almost call it scheme by the NHL. (laughs) We're going to kind of spitball some, yeah, yeah. We're going to spitball some other ideas of what we think the NHL, you know, might try to do to uh, create some of the lost revenue uh, due to COVID and a lack of fans in the stands. So Ken, why don't you uh, start us off? Uh, What do you think of some of the reverse retros and, from what you've seen, what are you looking forward to? I think the full reveal. I think some of the ones that we've been, the bits and pieces of the jerseys that we've been teased with, I don't know that there's too many uh, bad ones out there. I'm, I like, I'm just going to say I'm glad Dallas has stayed away from the cowhead and went to a what seems to be a Minnesota North Star style jersey. Uh, as long as we can keep that cowhead in the vault and never see it again will be good um i I like a lot of them honestly i'm excited to see for myself the the canucks retro uh i have what i think that that they're basing it off of the gradient you know kind of what people call it salmon into dark blue uh jersey i have that one i bought it back in the day i i'm excited to see that one the you know, you, you talked before and like the avalanche one looks like it be, could be pretty good. Uh, it'll be exciting to see the whaler whalers back in, in Carolina. I know there's a, a little bit of hate around seeing uh, teams like the hurricanes, the avalanche, and even the stars using the jerseys of the cities they came from. I'm just, I, a lot of them look good. I, what's your take? <laughs> I'm tremendously excited in some of the jerseys, Um, especially it's my belief that a lot of the teams, and you just kind of touched on this, are going to go back to their prior city's logos. And I think we've seen potential Colorado Avalanche ones that are going to have the Quebec Nordique logo on the front. And I think it's awesome. I think it shows a respect to the city of where these teams came from and they're remembering the history. Um, I would like to see more of them. I think, you know, Dallas is probably going to go with Minnesota. Are the Calgary Flames going to go to Atlanta? Is Winnipeg going to go back to the, the original Jets logo? Or maybe, maybe the Arizona Coyotes are going to go back to the original Jets logo. I actually think a lot of these jerseys are going to be going back to the city that they originally came from. Like, wouldn't it be neat to see a, a Colorado Rockies jersey yeah. or a California Golden Seals jersey <laughs> or an Atlanta Thrashers jersey? Like, how can you yeah. not think this would be 
absolutely tremendous to have. I'm sure, you might have the current color schemes, but to have the old logos, like to me, it, it's the opportunity is there, and a lot of money can be made. And I, I just think it would be so awesome. Like, wouldn't you love to get a Quebec Nordiques? Patrick Waugh jersey <laughs> yeah like yeah. wouldn't that just like throw salt in Montreal Canadiens faces I think so. fans would, faces like that would, that would that would cause some that would cause some hurt for sure I think like I, wouldn't I, that just be phenomenal yeah just as you were going there, I was thinking too like you know where did some I honestly think that like I like what I've seen in the Canucks one and I will my bank account will probably take a hit once they do get released but I think they missed the mark because it looks like they're going to keep the Orca logo with the the darker blue and the green scheme, but they could have gone to Flying V. How they're not going back to 94 and that color scheme is beyond me. Yeah, I, I honestly would just rather see them go back to the 94 scheme, color scheme permanently in that jersey, like the, the skate logo back. Yeah. To me, that is, they need to bring that back. But I, I like what they did. Now the question is, we're talking revenue. A lot of people are going to probably buy these jerseys, but let's say at a 200 plus price point, how many jerseys do you buy in? Well, probably only one, even though my team, the Calgary Flames is releasing three new jerseys this season. Yeah. I'll probably only buy one. I thankfully already have, I essentially already have variations of the other two, but there's many Calgary Flames fans who are going to be dropping 800 bucks to get three new jerseys this year. Yeah. But I know personally, I'm, I'm only planning on buying one. So, and that's the thing, like you take a team like the Golden Knights, they're in going into year four. They have four jerseys now. They've got their normal home and away. They've got the gold. And now they're going to have this red retro jersey. I don't know what retro they're going to. Yeah, I'm I'm a little torn on Um, that one. But this is a team that's in year four and has four jerseys. Like if, if you're and you can't go to the casino anymore and drop 20 bucks and try and win enough to buy a jersey at some point this is gonna kill the fans because they're not gonna want to i know you can get the you can either go for the adidas ones that the players wear or you can get the fanatics one which is a little bit less still good quality but at a certain point you do have to say enough is enough this is a way for the nhl to make money we kind of talked about this with the cfl and how they could do it I think if the NHL wants to make money this year based off merchandise revenue, you got to check your price points. Yeah, I would agree with that. You got to give the fans reasonably priced merchandise so that you're not turning them off going, okay, I can buy a jersey for 250, just throwing the number, but a t-shirt's going to cost me $85. I mean, I went on I went on nhlshop.com cuz I wanted to try and get a Canucks skate logo just t-shirt and through through all that through the purchase taxes shipping a t-shirt was going to cost me upwards of 90 dollars wow so that's where it's like at what point do you do you have to look and say okay this is how we're making our revenue this year we got to do something different we got to lower the price point on hats because if hats are 20 bucks as opposed to 40 or 50 people are going to buy more Right. I think that's fair to say if you can get two or three hats for the price of you say you get three hats for 60 bucks. Well, that's one and a half hats previously. You got to find a way to make that more affordable for people to buy in. 
if this is yeah. going to be a major revenue stream. Yeah, I would. Uh, I totally agree with that. I think the price points are are too high, and it, it's not going to stop me, unfortunately. But <laughs> <laughs> again, I don't. But, but what you you mentioned hats and t-shirts. I I traditionally don't buy that apparel because I do find you know 30 40 50 bucks for a t-shirt way over a kill. Oh yeah. But you know I don't mind spending money on a quality jersey but a $40 hat is another thing I won't buy. You're right I would buy a $20 hat. Yeah. But I I traditionally won't. So I think you're onto something there about lowering price points. What do you think what what else can the NHL do to make money in this time? with no fans well as much as i don't want to say it because this goes against everything that i i i they don't like about european hockey i think you're going to see more ads on the players jerseys the helmets on the ice on the glass if there's no fans in the stands i think you're going to start to see some uh some ads on the glass could they put it you know in the netting of the goal or even on the goal posts. Like, are you going to see, you know, this goal post brought to you by Tim Horton's <laughs> coffee? <laughs> like, yeah, I think I, you're going to see a lot more of that. I think if you're going no fans, so let's take the Edmonton and Toronto bubbles where you had the seats covered, right? Yep. Absolutely sell that space. And the they NHL, will. The NHL already does put uh, advertisements up on the glass behind the nets that are there for TV only, right? You could still do that. And you could do that with the, the seat coverings you have by and pay to have it rotated through so many times. You could absolutely do that. I don't wanna see though, and I agree, sponsorship selling as much as you can is needed. Let's keep what we already got a lot on the ice as it is right now, let's keep it where it is. I really don't want to see the players looking like a skating billboard. The NBA, I think, has done a good job with what they've done with selling advertisement space on jerseys. It's one, it's small, it's not overbearing. It's noticeable, but it doesn't take your eye away. If you're trying to look through 15 advertisements on the back of a jersey to get a player's name or number... I don't want to see that, but I do agree that other ways to have sponsorships out there for people to see, absolutely do it up. Like, I think that's a good idea to get money in. But I think even such things as the face-off dots are going to become advertisements. Like, wouldn't you love to see the Bleacher Connection logo on every NHL ice in the face-off uh, dots? It would look beautiful. Just, it would look beautiful. It would be awesome. <laughs> I think you could very much see things like that where the face-off dots or this face could the offside lines. Yeah. 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 Coca-Cola could become the, the Coca-Cola face-off dot. Like I yeah. think you're going to see uh, out of the box thinking like that. I think you could see the twine of the net be, be a logo of some kind or even a word that you can read when it's straight on. And I just think you're going to see a lot more stuff like that that are just revenue opportunities. Yeah, I'd like to see them do it with the imposed, like do it for TV only, where we as an audience see it, but it's not going to be 
everything that's in like the players kind of keep their I would like to see it keep, kept as clean as possible. Yeah, so and I, I think that's how they would do it. Yeah. Uh, other things that I think they might do is I think during the live play, I think you're going to potentially see some in-game cutaways where they show a quick five-second ad where the, the announcers just stop talking and you might get a quick five-second you know, shop Amazon pop-up type ad because chances are they'd set it up when one team is you know behind the net setting up on a power play could they then quickly jump to uh uh, an ad that pops up on the screen that's a possibility in my opinion well they do it in soccer because in soccer you got 45 minutes at least plus injury time of uninterrupted play where you don't cut away for commercials so you have that opportunity Soccer is a bit of a different sport where the play takes maybe a little longer to build up, but you take a guy like Connor McDavid who could go from his own goal line to front of the net in five seconds. If you're depending on how much of a cutaway and screen size variation you have, are you going to miss something because the, it was too small live on TV? I think you would do the screen in screen type cutaway, but yeah, it's another chance. So, I'll tell you one thing I don't want to see. I do not want to see pay-per-view. We, the NHL did it years ago where I know for the Canucks season one year, it was 13 games were pay-per-view. I don't want to see that because right now, as much as you kind of look at is sports really necessary, I think yes, because it, it's a piece of normal that everyone gets and it takes away from everything and you get to watch something that would be considered normal. And I think that's a, a huge piece. Yeah, but could you imagine the, the revenue that could be generated if it was game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals between the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Washington Capitals, and all of a sudden it is a pay-per-view game? That would be such outside, a revenue stream. But outside I, I would those hate two to markets. see it, but... Yeah, but outside of those two fan bases, would you pay to watch that? I personally wouldn't. Yeah, but as an advertiser, is that what you want? Where now you're paying to simply have your stuff shown to this small of a group, a small group, as opposed to everyone. Because if it's on TV, we both know you and I would turn that on to watch because it's exciting hockey. For, For advertisers, more eyes on the game, more eyes on their products to sell. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I just think. Uh, what about uh, in-game sports betting? Yeah, I, I think. I mean, if the NHL had something like set up where it was through the league, I don't know how you'd regulate that. I mean, you got Vegas in the league now. You got sports betting right there, and in, in now I don't know if you allow it team-wide to to do that or if it's league-controlled. But it, you know, is that also a slippery slope to potential problems? I think it's a very slippery slope. But could you imagine? you know, the, the Washington capitals are just about to go on a power play and you could log onto a website and bet real money on, do I think they're going to score on this power play? Yeah. Like, could you imagine the, the, the possibilities there? I personally wouldn't do it, but I know there's a major market of people that would, and if done the right way, could it, that be a massive revenue stream? Okay, let's, let's... Uh, I also think another thing they're going to look at is, the players are going to be asked to drive revenue a little bit more. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think 
the players are going to be asked to show their personalities a little bit more and they're going to try to sell that. Yeah. And are you going to have more uh, off ice player cameos where let's say Sidney Crosby, you could buy, you know, 10 minutes of Sidney Crosby's time for your son's birthday party to sing him happy birthday <laughs> or, or things along those things, you know, imagine a major corporate event that you're holding on zoom and you could have, you know, Connor McDavid give you pay to give you an inspirational speech. I, I, I think you might see a little bit more of that. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. But I mean, you brought up zoom now as a fan, the NBA had the virtual rotating, you know, yep. fans behind WWE has Thunderdome, which their entire crowd is video screened in. Would you pay 20 bucks to have your, your face in the crowd at a game? I wouldn't, but tons of people would. Yeah, that could be another one. You set up those screens and you 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 watch the game on your computer or however on with your phone there, and your reactions is live to when your team scores, right? Yep. That could be another one. People may pay a twenty dollar ticket price to have their face in the game. I think that's definitely something that could come up. Yeah, I totally do. Our last topic for the day is with the NBA has kind of set December 22nd as their return to date or return date to play. Is that going to have a, an impact on the NBA and the health and safety of their players and are other pro sports going to feel the pressure to get back and possibly start up sooner? Uh, the, the most prevalent one being the NHL. Ken, do you think that the NBA coming back quickly is, is going to spur the NHL to, to move up their time frame, and do you think there's any negative ramifications of doing this? Well, I think for the NHL, you got a lot of and US, um, you have a lot of teams that share arenas, so I do think they there may be some pressure felt to get a start date going so that you're not left out of all the prime time slots. Uh, TV is going to be a big revenue maker. So I think you don't want to be left out of every Saturday night in a lot of major markets like New York, where the Knicks, if they play every night on Saturday in prime time, where do the Rangers play? They're not playing at home. They're not playing at a MSG at, at, at a prime time slot to make, have everyone be seeing that. It sounds like the NBA is also going to have teams playing out of their own arenas and traveling throughout the U S because the Raptors have been rumored to potentially be playing out of, or have been, rumored around Nashville to play out of their arena for that time. So I think safety wise, depending on how they're going to do it, I think it has to be done correct. And if it is shared arenas, that could get a lot of people going in and out for two organizations. Now, do you think there's going to be fans in the stands in some of these locations? I don't know. I think there is obviously the want for these teams to have fans in, in the arenas but I don't necessarily think it's a good idea. I think it may be limited. I know there has been some talk of teams throughout the sporting world trying to find ways to bring in a small amount, five to 10,000 fans a game spread out. I just don't think it's a good idea with the way the numbers are going for COVID. We saw, we saw it in baseball. When fans were introduced, there were cases in the players. Yeah. Um, I still think on a safety, player safety, organization safety, for everyone involved, I, you got to go no fans. That's my take on it. I'm going to go with the player safety angle on it, but I have a little bit of a different player safety. I'm actually worried about actual injuries. 
where the NBA off season is going to be barely 70 days. And are you risking the health of some of your, your stars who recently were just playing as of 70, 80 days ago, haven't had an opportunity to actually have a real off season and were potentially, you know, nursing some nagging injuries. And now you're rushing them back into getting right back on the court. I fear a little bit for, especially some of the older NBA players that I think injuries are going to be a major storyline next season. I also, uh, I'm a little leery on it based on this is a very short off season. And I think there's a competitive disadvantage to some of the teams that have a lot of off season work to do. Most specifically, I look at a team like the Toronto Raptors who have a boatload of free agents and some big name free agents they're not going to have a lot of time to do anything. They're not going to have a lot of time to mull different uh, things that could happen. I look at Fred Van Vliet needing re-signed, and all of a sudden it's like you've got this compressed time frame to make a decision on what do I do with Fred Van Vliet. You also have a compressed time frame on do I trade him? Well, you're not being given an opportunity. So yeah, I think there's going to be a – a, He does want to get paid. So that's and gonna, so it's going to take some time. Yeah, it's kind of, I think some of these teams are going to have competitive disadvantages heading into next year because they may have a long laundry list of off-season things to do and they literally have a week to do it, if not less. Yeah, and the the big part of it is you did bring up the injuries and, you know, the players in the off-season. This was voted on by the players to accept it. I yes. Don't, I don't know what the vote was. I know LeBron was vocal about not liking it and thinking it was a joke. But at the same time, the majority of his peers voted in favor of it. Now, is that because LeBron is getting a little bit older and they think they can take advantage of it? Um, because they did have a longer uh, playoff run? I don't want to see teams rush to any kind of decision on this because it could hurt the players. It could hurt the – and that's first and foremost when I'm talking about things here, but – player safety, whether it's COVID or injuries, but also quality of the game. Yes. Are you, if you're rushing it back, are you really putting forth the best product possible? Because the NBA is going to play a 72 game season, not a, I mean, it's 10 games reduced, but really that's still almost a full season. I know the NHL yeah, has I... talked about a reduced 48. So which would get them, they would kind of have to start, in the new year fairly early to get back onto a normal schedule of timing so that the following season you could get your full off season your full rest and then you come back at the normal time well and how many nba teams are going to adopt the Kawhi leonard load management model when you're talking about a reduced schedule in a in a condensed time frame how many viewers are going to be pissed off because they go to watch LeBron and the Lakers versus Kawhi and the Clippers and LeBron and Kawhi aren't playing due to load management. Yeah. I think you're going to see a lot of it and you're going to get some, some pretty pissed off fans. And to the NHL point of view, I'm with you where I think they are going to kind of rush into this and get back on the ice as quickly as possible. And I think theirs is going to be potentially even more 
reduced where you're playing four games and five nights in some scenarios to really limit travel. Well, are you going to see a Calgary Flames versus Edmonton Oilers that doesn't have Connor McDavid and Johnny Gaudreau play in the fourth game and fifth nights? I yeah. think that could be a real problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's the quality. If you're going to do it, do it, but do it right. Don't rush it because – you know, the NBA is already going to be up and running well in it ahead of you. I don't think that the NHL, I don't know that they will rush it because it all has to be agreed upon also, but I think it will, it might push it a little bit. I just don't want to see a joke of a game when it comes to the viewership. And I'm more worried about the NBA having that than the NHL because the NBA has really put an emphasis on getting back on the court. And I think it's going to come at a detriment to their league. And I really hope the NHL sees that and, and doesn't make it the reason to get back though. I am fearful that they will. Yeah. Well, what tell, let us know what you think. I mean, what other ways can the NHL generate revenue? Uh, do you think that our ideas are on point way off, way off in what we're saying, or uh, do you guys have any other, good ideas let us know also let us know about the start date for the nba and the nhl and what do you think that's going to do uh on twitter at the bleacher con one at the bleacher con two and our facebook page the bleacher connection with ken and trevor we want to thank everyone for listening in on the unhinged sports network and all the different uh podcast platforms we appreciate it and uh thanks for listening thanks everyone